So I want to ask you a question, and I hope that it stays a question that we ask only in theory. How would you respond if someone decided they were going to set up shop to sell drugs out of your bedroom? Now note what I said or what I didn't say. I didn't say how, did you, how would you feel. I said how would you respond? I'm guessing the response could be pretty extreme. Maybe even out of the norm for you to be in a situation like that. To take it one step further, or maybe even one step deeper, especially here at Woodland, knowing the, the makeup of our group, how would you respond if you witnessed somebody desecrating an American flag? Now, I say that especially here because we have so many service people here. Uh, it would be hard to find a Sunday in the 11 years that I've been here that over half the church isn't filled with somebody who is immediately related to military. Knowing that, I'm guessing the idea of rage only scratches the surface of how people would respond, especially among those who have lost friends defending our country. The only limits to our response might be, might be the threat of prison repercussions. And yet I know many people that watch this are nice people, maybe even those, especially those who have worn uniforms in the past. I'd gladly invite them over to light up the fire pit together or, or fire up the grill. I've even trusted some with my own kids, with my own flesh and blood to watch them. So in the last series that we were talking about, uh, that we're going to kind of use across, uh, across the preaching calendar as we are um, kind of filling in some of the gaps, there were many questions that were still pending, that idea of Christianity's greatest questions. But one really served as a solid transition to uh, into this series, where we explore who God is, not from the $6 words of the theology dictionaries, but from the angle of emotions, something that we can really relate to, especially in the gospel stories, because we see Jesus, God with skin on, and experiencing all those emotions that we have as, as people. So the great transition question, I think, is this one. How can Christians follow, much less worship, a God who seems so angry, who has so many episodes of rage and wrath, especially when we claim a faith theme that God loves you? See, if Jesus, again, is skin on, then the easiest way to approach this idea would be from the Gospels, since there, especially in the story that we're going to look at today from John 2, both anger and love play out in ways that we can recognize. So let's check out the story in the first two verses of John 2, verses 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. So let me paint a bit of a picture of what's going on here. They're celebrating the Passover festival together, which is the biggest deal in Jewish worship. People from every tribe, every nation, every language coming together from as far as the, the known world to get together for worship for this festival. It's like the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, and Times Square on New Year's Eve all rolled up into one. People are coming together for this festival and, and for this worship, which is the huge part of why this is all going on. And the, the big engine behind worship in these days was the sacrificial system. Basically, an animal's blood was shed or an animal was sacrificed for, as an offering for the sins that we have committed against God. It's sort of a celestial payment plan, if you will. However, 
This is not the days of Amazon Prime or Learjets. You couldn't just send an animal out ahead of you that you were going to sacrifice when you got to Jerusalem. And you couldn't exactly travel very quickly uh, from wherever you were to Jerusalem. Uh, rough terrain. If you were lucky, if you were rich enough, you might have a camel. Otherwise, you're doing this really on foot. So what people would do is people would come and they would exchange their foreign currency for temple currency. And they'd buy their sacrificial animal on site at the temple. Now, logistically, it made perfect sense. Now, was there some rabble-rousing going on uh, in the exchange and maybe some pocket-sized inflation or top-skimming tax going on? Well, certainly, perhaps. Uh, people have tried to make the case that that is what gets Jesus in such a rage, as we'll see in a little bit here. But um, the, um, the area is not well known for honesty when it comes to dealing with money and foreigners, as we see in any of the tax collector stories. But... When we see Jesus' reaction to the scene, as he's walking into the, to the temple scene and seeing all this money changing and going on, I believe something different or something bigger is going on, as we see in the next couple of verses, in verse 15 through 17. Making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So often when we are hearing this story, we have this image of Jesus going all Indiana Jones on people. Like he's taking out a bullwhip and just welting people up left and right and just going into a rampage. And, you know, this carpenter who can probably handle himself pretty well, is out for blood, we imagine. Truly, Jesus isn't coming at it with like this leather whip that's going to hurt people. He is using the reeds that are used in basket weaving um, the, to make baskets. It would be something similar to this, which is basically, at best, a wimp whip. He's not going to hurt somebody with this. It's more really for effect. Get out of here. Get, stop making my father's house a, a marketplace. And in fact, he's, he's flailing a wimp whip and he's, he's going after the effect. And some people get it. Some people are like, all right, you know what? This guy's kind of um, in a rage. I'm going to get out of here. Some, but some people stick around and they start to question Jesus. As we see in verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Show us your badge, Jesus. What authority do you have to be wrecking our business here? Because that's basically what they're doing. They're having conducting business when in the temple and for the temple. And Jesus gets a bit cryptic in his answer. But it's the one place where he's allowed to say, and he, he kind of says, I'm doing this simply because I'm God. On some occasions, it's like Jesus ha says, I don't need to explain myself. I don't need to give you a reason for what I'm doing. I don't need to explain myself to you, as we might say it uh, these days. You ever uh, say to your, to your kids uh, in frustration after you told them something or you've answered a, a bunch of questions, you're just, you're just like, because I told you so or because I said so? Same kind of thing. I get as well as anybody, those are frustrating situations. It's like, uh, the character Job from the Old Testament, when he's asking God why, he was a guy who 
had plenty of reasons to ask why or to pray why. God, why am I going through this situation? Why am I having such difficulty? Job was one who had all his fortunes destroyed, all his family killed, his body was all but dead. And what does God give him as an answer to his why question as he's sitting at the bottom of a tree, all boils all over his body? God says, surely the oceans ask you how far they're allowed to go. Right, Job? Of course, the lightning asks you and consults with you about where it's allowed to strike and where it has to stay away from. Not exactly the most satisfying answer. And, G- and God keeps bringing it like 40 times to Job until he finally says, you know what? Okay, I get it. God, you are God and I am not. God says, I do certain things just because I'm God. Fortunately, that's not the end-all be-all of God's character. I think there really is something deeper going on than just because I'm God. Maybe you've had this experience. Uh, when I was a, in high school, uh, I had a, about a two-inch fuse, and just about anything could set me off. And as far as people saying things or, or slighting me, whether I, I perceived it or not. And what I would do, my, my habit oftentimes, was I would go down in our basement where I had my heavy bag, and I would punch that thing until my arms fell off. And I would, sometimes I would literally knock that thing off the ceiling, and it'd fall to the ground, and I'd get on top of it, and I'd just keep punching and punching, elbows and elbows, and just until my body was completely exhausted. And then when I couldn't move my arms anymore, a lot of times I, I sat on that thing and I just wept because I realized somewhere underneath all the rage and the anger and the frustration, there was something about the situation that was breaking my heart. And I think that's part of what Jesus has going on here. So hear, hear that in Jesus' answer to the authorities in verses 19 through 22. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is starting to make connections between the temple the physical temple, and himself. So go back a minute. What's supposed to be happening in the temple? What's supposed to be happening in this Passover festival? It's supposed to be worship. But what's happening instead? Here's the money. Here's the animal. Priest does his thing. I'm done. Money, money, animal, priest, done. You could do worship without walking 10 feet. Worship has become this total transactional thing. There's no recognition, there's no reflection on the fact that this animal is dying in my place. I'm the one who's supposed to be on that offering table, and yet I'm not. When we recognize that, it wakes us up. Worship absolutely stops being this transactional, money, animal, blood, done event. You know, like I've done my duty and now I can go about the rest of my life. So take this a few, take this into the future, whether it's months or years, depending on how you do the chronology of the gospel stories. What will worship look like when Jesus is the one that's the sacrificial animal? 
when Jesus voluntarily puts himself on the vertical offering table, the cross. Will it be money, animal, blood done? Will people worship with the reflection and the life of a visit to the DMV? Now, it can be easy watching this or seeing this and saying, of course not. But would Jesus hear it that way? All this mindless transactional worship, unless something changes, why would Jesus think it's going to be any different when he's the one being sacrificed? Unless the tables get flipped, unless our worlds get rocked on occasion, why would they do any different in the first century? Why would we do anything different today? So what tables could Jesus be flipping in our hearts? What might Jesus think? You know what? You think you do this right, and maybe even you do this right because you've done it for 40 years, but it's putting a glass ceiling on the relationship that I want with you. And maybe there are many things we do do right, but when we do right by rote, It wrecks the relationship that Jesus died to give us. So make that your prayer this week. That if there are any such tables, that Jesus would show them to you. Now, for sure, he will flip them. And it is not fun to have tables flipped inside, proverbially speaking. But because he loves us, because rage and wrath is not the one dimension of Jesus Christ, He'll take the right ones and turn them back upright in our hearts and fill them with a relational feast like we have never seen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to flip the tables in our hearts when they need flipping, to rock our world when it needs rocking. Help us, by your Spirit, to be transformed so that our worship, our lives, bring glory and honor to you and joy and love and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control into our lives. Make this work. And thank you for loving us enough to do what we pray. Amen.